My God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For thou hast made of a city an heap, of a defense city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city, it shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee, the city of the terrible nation shall fear thee, for thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers, as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible one shall be brought low. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth for the Lord has spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. And he shall spring forth, spread forth his hands in the midst of them, as he that swimmeth spreadeth forth his hands to swim, and he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. And the fortress of the high fort of thy walls shall he bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, even to the dust. call your attention this evening to the 8th verse of Isaiah 25, the beautiful promise, he will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. People of God, we have here a very beautiful promise found in a, in a very beautiful context. Not the broader context of the prophecy of Isaiah, but the context of this chapter, because the prophet begins the chapter by extolling Jehovah God with praise. O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. And so it is. God is great and greatly to be praised. 
And that's because the wonderful things that God does are done in connection with his purpose to save his people in Christ. Always God accomplishes his sovereign good pleasure in the salvation of his church, his Zion, which he has loved from eternity. And so the prophet continues by explaining what he has seen. Literally, we read, Thy counsels from afar, from eternity, are amen and amen. God's counsel, as revealed in his promises to his church, to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, is emphatically, amen. It shall truly and certainly be. That's the confidence of the prophet Isaiah. And when you consider the broader context, you see that this confession and this praise arise from a heart of faith. Isaiah, who confessed himself to be by nature a man of unclean lips, was the servant of God in whom Jehovah God worked mightily by the wonder work of his grace, calling and qualifying him for his prophetic office. So that as Isaiah prophesied, he saw God's work and rejoiced, else his labors would have been impossible to bear. Isaiah has been unfolding the burdens of his heart, the terrors of his prophetic vision. God has given him to see the judgments that God would pour out upon the earth affecting the entire face of the earth. He sees desolation and death. But because he is mindful of the faithfulness of Jehovah, whose He praises God for those wonderful, albeit terrible, things. I said we have a beautiful context here in this chapter, but that context is seen against a very dark background. Once again, we are reminded of the main theme of Isaiah's prophecy, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment. In this chapter, Isaiah sees a great city reduced to a heap of rubble. God has done it. A strong, fortified city has become a collapsed ruin. And that city refers to the representative world power that has dominated God's people under God's chastening hand. It's that city which stood in opposition to the city of God. Like Babylon, that great city of sin and corruption, which is always set forth as the contrast over against the mountain of God's holiness on which Jerusalem was built, she stood in arrogant opposition to God's kingdom and work. And that city, as seen now in Isaiah's vision, and of which he prophesies, is now destroyed. 
together with its terrible ones. But the result of that judgment is the salvation of the people of God. So Isaiah sees God's wondrous works. Jehovah is a strength to the poor and needy in their distress. And is there anyone more poor and needy, beloved, than us who live in the midst of death? God is our strength. He's a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat. He is all those things in the mountain of his holiness. We have to see ourselves in that mountain today. And that mountain, the mountain of Jehovah of hosts, is Zion, God's church. It's that place where Jehovah God dwells and touches his people in love, where he dwells with them in the beauty of holiness, sanctifying them, saving them. As we look at that mountain from our New Testament perspective, we find Christ there. Christ, who came as a lowly child, who became a servant named Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. Christ, we have to see him dying for his people. The sheep given him of God, as we read in John 10. And against that dark background of that judgment as seen especially in Golgotha in the way of the son's death under the burden of our guilt, Jehovah of hosts shall make unto his people a great feast. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. When the Lord so destroys that covering and removes the veil, you and I both see Jehovah God and his wondrous work. In the face of death, we see him in the mountain of his holiness. We see Christ and our salvation. Yes, he will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. And that incredible scene of glory is certain. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Consider with me then this evening our blessed victory. We notice the swallowing of death, the wiping away of tears, and the removal of rebuke. The servant of Jehovah speaks of victory over death. Yes, we must speak of death tonight. We can't avoid death. It surrounds us. It surrounds us everywhere we turn. We must talk about death. 
We must talk about it openly. Knowing the victory that is ours over it. But what we must understand, especially if we are to receive the comfort of the gospel, is that death is not just the single event when you breathe your last and are laid in the grave. Death, physical death, is something that we suffer all our life long on this earth. From the moment you are taken from the womb and laid in the crib, you are dying. The germs of death, as it were, are right in your body. From the moment of conception, We're fearfully and wonderfully made. The body is a most amazing organism. And especially is that truth revealed when you realize that through your whole life, you live with the divine agents of death gnawing at your very vital, while God upholds you in his wonderful providence. In the midst of all this dying, God is the one who gives life and breath and all things to preserve us in this earthly pathway as he leads us on our heavenward journey, accomplishing his purpose with us. But the fact remains, you and I, whether in the age of great strength, as the the psalmist describes old age, or whether in the beauty of youth it makes no difference, we are dying. It's exactly as God had said before the fall when he told Adam the day that thou eatest of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Hebrew literally is Dying thou shalt die. That's the sentence of God. Death is the tyrant which has consumed the world ever since as the consequence of the fall of Adam. It's the punishment, therefore, of our own guilt in Adam. And as a tyrant, death spares none. He might subdue a young man or a young woman in a wreck. He squeezes the life out of the elderly. The whole of our earthly existence is a dying. A walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so we read those words of the inspired psalmist in Psalm 90, as we sang earlier, Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. The Lord does that. The Lord brings to death. He calls all men, Return to the dust. And We do that from the moment of conception until we lie in the casket. 
all the pains that we suffer in this life, all the sorrows, the trials, the discomfort, the afflictions, are not merely the messengers of death. They are death itself. Do you see then why we need the gospel? And that's only the least part of death. What I've described. Because behind that is spiritual death. Spiritual death is to live apart from God. That's that terrible separation from God. Not a local separation. To never escape God. Separation from God in the sense of being separated from his fellowship and favor to experience his just wrath. The state and condition of of spiritual death is described in a passage such as Romans 3. The way of peace have they not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what you and I inherit and carry with us in our sinful, depraved human nature from the moment we are born to the last breath. We carry that fallen nature with us. And the consequence of spiritual and physical death is eternal. If physical death is so terrible, and spiritual death even more terrible, what shall we say about eternal death? Any person who speaks lightly, who jokes about eternal death, lacks the spiritual sensitivity of the Christian. There is nothing more horrible, more hopeless, than everlasting languishing under the infinite wrath of God. You understand that, don't you? If we were ever to look to ourselves and try to find in our works that which would merit heaven for us, we'd be lost forever. Hell is what we deserve. That death is what we embrace. We can focus on all kinds of earthly joys and pleasures and enjoy our relationships and the things of this earth, but all too soon they're snatched from us. What a blessing then when in the mercy of God we are brought by the words of Isaiah's prophecy to see that death is swallowed up by Jehovah. That's the beauty of the gospel for us. Also today, he, that is Jehovah, will swallow up death in victory. And he has, as we read in the last part of 1 Corinthians 15. You see, that death cannot merely be pushed aside. There's separation between us and God because of our sin. He can't take 
dying people to himself in their corruption because he's the righteous and holy God, separate from sinners. So what does he do? He sends Jesus to us. He sends his only begotten Son into our flesh. Jehovah God comes down from heaven to his people. Notice that the text refers to Jehovah. Jesus Christ had not yet come when Isaiah wrote this prophecy. Now we know that victory over death comes by Jesus Christ. Jehovah's salvation. And the summary of that victory is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, when Isaiah points to Jehovah of hosts and says he will swallow up death in victory, he's telling us that when we look at the cross in the light of God's word, we see Jehovah. Jehovah's salvation. He takes the flesh and blood of his children and goes to the cross. He absorbs his own wrath in the person of Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. Jesus, Jehovah's salvation, fulfilled all those demands of God's justice and holiness and truth, it took almighty, everlasting power to absorb that wrath and overcome God, Jehovah, the one who is unchangeably faithful to his covenant, is the only one who could stand there and survive. That's Jesus. And he destroyed destroyed death, says the text, by swallowing it. That's a figurative expression. That's a powerful expression, isn't it? All the dregs of death, the bitterness of that cup of eternal suffering under the wrath of God, our Savior had to drink and did drink to the last drop. That horrible monster, that enemy which is death, physical death, spiritual death, everlasting death, all that death, Jehovah God swallowed by Christ at the cross. And why? Have you faced that question? Here we stand before the amazing truth of the gospel. Why did the Lord of hosts swallow up death in victory? To save sinners? Yes. No sinner could be saved apart from this wonderful work of God, but that's not the deepest motivation. We still stand before the question, why would God bother to save sinners, especially when the cost was the life of his own only begotten son? So we must dig deeper. 
And the Bible gives us the reason. Jehovah God swallowed up death in victory through Jesus Christ because it was his eternal and sovereign good pleasure to glorify himself in Christ by the salvation of his people. He does all things for his own namesake, the Bible tells us. So true is that, that that even explains the place of the wicked in the broader scheme of things. We read in Proverbs 16, verse 4, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. He does all things for himself. Let me put it another way. God doesn't need us in heaven. He doesn't need millions of people in his house of many mansions in order to be a happy God. He's full of joy within his own divine life. He has perfect fellowship in that covenant life within himself. He doesn't need us. But in his own good pleasure to save sinners, even as many as the sand on the seashore so that we would see how lovely he is. He saved us. He wanted to show millions of people, the children of Zion throughout history, how beautiful he is. And remember, when I speak of God's beauty, I speak of his grace against the dark background of death stands the wonder of our Savior saving a people so that we sing, Thou, O Jehovah, in Thy sovereign grace hast saved my soul from death and woe appalling. Blessed be thy name forever and ever. But Isaiah is given to proclaim yet another promise, another wonderful word of God. The Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. Many are the tears in this valley, as you well know. And while we While we tend to think initially of human tears, the Bible reveals the whole creation groans and travails in pain together. You read of it in Romans 8, verse 22. There's also the rather graphic description in Ecclesiastes 1, verses 5 and following. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again to its circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet is the sea not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. 
all things are full of labor. Notice that. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 8, all things are full of labor. That's expressive of the creation as the consequence of the fall into sin. And literally the idea is all things are so tired. Tired. Reminds me of a person with heart trouble. My late father-in-law described it. Having to do a treadmill test. Coming off that treadmill. So tired. That's life. That's life in this fallen world. Not only are there tears in creation, but there are tears of mankind in general. Untold misery in this world. I don't know about you, but I can hardly watch the news anymore. Nothing but turmoil and grief. The misery is endless. There's death everywhere. Take our eyes off the sovereignty of God, even for a moment, the misery becomes unbearable to see. The whole world falls under the Bible's description as a valley of tears. And when the Lord promises to wipe away tears from off all faces, he doesn't mean all tears, nor the faces of every person. All never means every person in the Bible. When he speaks of all faces, that's explained in the following clause as all faces of his people. The tears which Almighty Jehovah will wipe away are very special to him. They're the tears of his people. Those whom he has loved. They're so precious, as the psalmist shows us in Psalm 56 verse 8, he puts your tears into a bottle. They're precious in his sight because... He loves you who are his children. Those tears, after all, are connected with God taking away the covering and removing the veil from our eyes. First thing we see when the veil is removed from our eyes is we see God, the holy and righteous God. It's only because you see God and you realize His holiness and righteousness that the just God lives right before you and around you that you see against that background the light of His own holiness. You see your own 
death and corruption. When you see yourself before the living God, you weep. Spiritually, you weep. That's godly sorrow. We sing about it. Needy and sorrowful to thee I cry. Let thy salvation set my soul on high. And the text tells us those tears the Almighty Jehovah wipes away. In all Scripture, the tenderness of this portion of the text stands out. That the Lord should should reveal himself in such a way, stooping to engage in such an apparently trivial matter. That's astounding. It's pretty rare, through all the tears your children shed, pretty rare that we reach down and, and dry those tears with our hands. They dry quite well on their own. But in the tenderness of his unspeakable love, Jehovah reaches down to wipe them away. And the reach of his hand is amazingly broad because the text speaks of his wiping away the tears from off all faces his concern for the pain and suffering of his each of his children could hardly be stated more expressly. And that's why we can also live rejoicing. While there is always this undercurrent of sorrow in our earthly sojourn, there is also a great joy in our life everlasting joy, overwhelming joy. To us, it's a joy that supersedes the sorrow, that comes to expression even through our tears. I speak of the constant tension of the Christian life as as the Apostle Paul expresses it in Romans 7. The Christian life is one of lamentation and victory. We see our sins. In fact, as we become, as we grow spiritually, we become quite knowledgeable of the depths of our misery. And we have reason to weep as we see our own sins and the sins and the effects of of worldliness that permeate the church. But the promise of God stands sure. And therefore we rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord always. Even in our sorrows. Because the tears we now shed, He will wipe away. Principally, our tears are wiped away already now. And yet we are waiting waiting for the day 
when these words of Revelation 21 verse 4 will be fulfilled and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And that shall surely come to pass as God takes the rebuke of his people from off all the earth. God's people are always rebuked. We are rebuked by the devil, by the world, sometimes by the brethren. Rebuked by the law of God, rebuked by our own conscience. Rebuke speaks of condemnation. Condemnation presupposes guilt, sin, corruption. And the first reason we are rebuked is because of the sin that remains in our members. How often we have to hear that rebuke. There's no denying that Often the church deserves such rebuke. Often I deserve the rebuke of my own conscience. There is only one who did not deserve rebuke, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. But the second reason we are often rebuked is because of the hatred people have toward God's truth. All the venom of hell is poured out against God's church on this earth so that the truth of God is discredited by those who spread lies or attempt to paint a false picture. We have to live with the effects of that rebuke. All those rotten hypocrites in the church they speak of us. And they know this church member who did that and that church member who did this. That way of thinking would even plague us when we would look at men rather than considering the truth of God. Some of that rebuke is even deserved. It ought to bring shame to our faces. But shall we fix our eyes upon Jehovah, upon his truth? Shall we fix our eyes upon his truth even today? Then we shall hate sin and confess sin and turn from sin, even our own sin. But sometimes the rebuke comes simply because we understand the importance of believers walking in obedience to God's word. Walking in the truth. Teaching our children that. Living to the glory of God. And people who 
have departed from the faith and have no love for the truth, hate us for it. It gives them a guilty conscience. You think we're, you're better than we are. You think you're the only ones going to heaven. We don't teach that. Never have. You repeatedly have heard the cautions against pride and guard against it. But because we walk in the truth, we are rebuked. Don't let that bother you, people of God. We are told in 1 Peter 2, verse 20, but if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Just be sure your life is faithful to your confession. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that lives within you. And look to the God of our salvation, who has promised to take away from off all the earth the rebuke of his people. And all these things shall certainly come to pass for our comfort and salvation, for Jehovah hath spoken it. That's the last word. If Jehovah has spoken it, that's the last word. It's as good as accomplished. When God has spoken, no one in heaven, on earth, or in hell can undo it. God, who is pure truth, the unchangeable one, cannot lie. <clears throat> I stand before you, <clears throat> excuse me, as the mouthpiece of Christ tonight. And I say to you, who hear this promise of God, be comforted. Be comforted. Isaiah speaks under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> in the consciousness that the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And so the servant of God says, O Lord, thou art my God. I will exalt thee. I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels from eternity are amen and amen. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord Jehovah will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. He already has in Jesus Christ. And he will bring his perfect work to completion. Because Jehovah has spoken it. Amen.
Gracious Father, we thank Thee for the promise of the Gospel. The wonder of Thy grace revealed to us in Jesus Christ, in whom we have the victory over death, and who shall wipe away tears from off all faces and take away the rebuke of his people. For thou, Lord, hast spoken it. Amen.